Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, today's episode is brought to you by Tweaked Audio. Right now, listeners of this program can get 33% off of any purchase over at tweakedaudio.com. Just go to tweakedaudio.com. And enter the offer code other people O T H E R P P L. Get thirty three percent off of any purchase. Get yourself some earbuds. Get yourself some headphones. Get yourself some cutting edge listening devices at tweakedaudio.com. These are earbuds. These are headphones. You can listen to things with them. Go and get some. Oh my God! You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jake, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is someone intentional. This is actually kind of interesting. Hello, how's it going? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. How are you? What is happening with you? out there. Uh, I have a very good show for you today. Jonica Stuckey is my guest. He has a new poetry collection out. It's called The Truth Is We Are Perfect. It's available now from Third Man Books out of Nashville, Tennessee. And uh, I had a very fascinating conversation with Jonica. I think you're going to enjoy it. That's coming up in uh, just a moment. I don't have much to say. Uh, it's been a slow week. I've been fighting a bit of a cold, but I do want to take a moment to thank everybody for the good wishes regarding the uh, LA Weekly feature from last week. For those of you who are not aware, I was named one of the 54 most fascinating people in Los Angeles for the year 2015 by LA Weekly. <laughs> uh, if it seems absurd to you, uh, rest assured, it seems a little bit absurd to me, but I'm grateful uh, for the feature. Glad that the show got a little bit of press. And I appreciate the good wishes. So there's that. Otherwise, it's a slow news week in my life. I, I've been racking my brain. I don't know what to tell you. I've done nothing. I have been inert. So I figure we should just get going with the program. I feel like Jonica can take over from here. We talked about a lot of interesting, uh, interesting things. So uh, without any further ado, this is my conversation with Jonica Stuckey. And his poetry collection, one more time, is called The Truth Is, We Are Perfect. So I got the name Jonica when I was about eight months old. Um, <clears throat> my parents were hippies, are hippies. I don't know how you want to classify that. 
once a hippie, always a hippie. Um, but they lived in India for a long time. They uh, took me to their guru um, and when I was a baby. And as the story goes, obviously I don't remember this, but um, he said something to the effect of he's going to be a leader, so he should also be wise and name him Janaka. And Janaka is a Hindu name. It's the name of a Hindu king, like a King Solomon-type character, pseudo-historical, definitely scriptural. Um, and he was, a, he was a philosopher, a problem solver, um, and he was also what's called a karma yogi. So a karma yogi is someone who achieves enlightenment not through renunciation of the world, like we think of the sort of ascetics sitting in caves and mountaintops, but actually someone who uh, achieves it through perfection of action within the world. So Janaka was a king, he was a husband, he was a father, um, but he was also a yogi, and that's where the name comes from. Well, no pressure, dude. Yeah, right, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus. And I found out, I, I didn't... So I knew the history of the name. I did, there's, a, there's a literal etymology of the name, too, which I didn't discover until I was in my 20s. And I went to India for the first time, just kind of backpacking around by myself. And, uh, and I found out that John, J-A-N, means wisdom. So Janaka literally means one who has wisdom. Damn. Okay, that's cool. So uh, I want to get into your parents. Your parents yeah. uh, being like authentic hippies, are they still hippies? Are they still with us? They're, they're still with us. They're still together after all these years, and um, they're still aspiring yogis. So they... Uh, and and they, what is, does that mean yoga? Like, or does that just mean like, yeah. like spiritual practitioners along the Buddhist <clears throat> line or Hindu? Uh, so, yeah, it's the Hindu line. Um, it does mean yoga, but not in the way that I think probably a lot of Westerners think of yoga. So typically, when you say yoga, someone is thinking of what is really Hatha yoga, which is that physical yoga, you know, you go and you do your sun salutations and you contort your body in all sorts of ways. That's Hatha yoga, which is the physical aspect. But yoga is really an umbrella term for meditation, chanting, spiritual discipline, the whole thing. So a yogi is someone who who practices any or all elements of that, not just the physical exercise part. So your parents, did your parents raise you Hindu? They uh, predominantly, but it's a it's a really inclusive practice, and they actually really strove to uh, expose me to all sorts of traditions. So my mom's side of the family is Jewish, uh, very liberal, non orthodox Jewish. Closest thing I would say would maybe be Reform Judaism, which is like a very open form of Judaism, which is like a lot of singing and community involvement really involved in the civil rights movement in the 60s. Um, And my dad's side of the family is like a very waspy Episcopalian (laughs) side. Um, So they came from those backgrounds. My dad actually was a went to Yale Seminary School, dropped out to follow Ram Dass around and then and then uh, got involved in all sorts of like weird cults in the Haight-Ashbury, California scene. I was going to say, and, like when you're following Ram Dass, in the, and I'm assuming the 60s, that, that means yep. that's like Richard Alpert, right? The guy with the oh, uh, yeah, LSD, yeah. lots of LSD. Yeah, 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 did a lot of that. I mean, like I've, I've done my own experimentation with psychedelics as an uh, adolescent and even to some degree as an adult. 
but like my experiments pale in comparison to my dad's experiments. Why would he? <laughs> yeah, because he was like he was like uh, you know that's the original. That's an OG. Yeah, yeah, and I, I mean, you know, I can't speak with any authority, but uh, allegedly the LSD then was like ten times stronger than what we have nowadays. So. <laughs> I, I, I shudder to think because the stuff, yeah. the stuff that I took, like, knocked me on my ass. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, he t- he's told me stories about, like, locking himself in a closet full of mirrors and taking acid or, uh, <laughs> you know, like, uh, reading Mein Kampf on LSD and then, uh, and then like, having, like, a spirit enter the room. And, like, he, he turned me on, on, on onto all this weird stuff. But, um, Dude, reading Mein Kampf on acid, is, <laughs> that is an intense endeavor. Yeah, well, then he switched, and I think he he got freaked out, and then he started reading I don't know is the Bible or some other scripture or something like that. Okay, so so uh, that was my that was my dad. My mom was a my mom was a beat, so she was actually not a hippie. She was really she was also really counterculture, but in the New York scene, kind of similar to maybe what people who are familiar with, you know, like Patty Smith grew up in that scene and just kids and that type of thing. So she was, she was hanging out with jazz musicians in lower Manhattan and stuff like that. Um, and was pretty much, a kind of a spiritual seeker, but more of an agnostic. And they both ended up finding the same guru and then following that guru around and then meeting each other while they were following that guru. Who's the guru? Uh, is this guy, Baba Muktananda? who is, he's dead now. Um, but, uh, yeah, he, he was sort of tasked with bringing this among other yogis with bringing this kind of meditation revolution to the West. Right. What do you think of that? Are you cynical about it or do you, do you, uh, maintain, like maintain an openness to it? Um, I guess both. I, uh, cause some of these, some of these gurus can be charlatans at, yeah, at, you know, yeah. or, or worse, you know, there's lots of stories like that. And then, you know, there's, uh, there's like Chogim Trungpa or whatever, the guy who mm-hmm. did Naropa. I mean, like there's people who like, you know, sing this guy's praises and say he was an amazing guy. And then, you know, he was also like a, a, a raging alcoholic who like was abusive sure. and, it, you know, there's like, it's a, it's a mix. And so it can be hard to know how to feel. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think the trap, occurs when people deify these individuals, you know, and that's where my cynicism lies is that I don't believe in these people uh, as perfect beings. I I think the teachings they have to offer and the practices and the discipline one can follow are totally legitimate and speaking from personal experience, very useful. You know, I'm, I'm actually a skeptic at heart um, and I don't really subscribe to anything that I can't uh, evaluate or confirm through firsthand experience, but I'm very open to trying anything. So I'll give everything a try. I'll and and I'll read Mind Comp on acid. <laughs> right, exactly. In a, in, in a clinic <laughs> closet full of mirrors, I'll do anything. Yeah, I'll do anything. Um, and I've done. And I have done. I mean, I've done. I've had my own strange experiments. You know, I when I when I got involved, uh, I got involved with psychedelics at a pretty young age and. I think I was probably about 15 when I first took LSD and mescaline. And when was this, we... Was this like parent-sponsored? Were your parents hippies? They were like, <laughs> no. They were like, you're a kid. No. Here's like a peyote button for your birthday. <laughs> yeah, no, they, definitely not at all. They didn't know I was doing this. But my friends and I were all also drawn to, you know, we were reading all this Huxley. And um, so we came to it from a very... Um, we came 
we didn't want, we didn't come to it as like, oh, I want to get fucked up and see trails. It was like, oh, I want to, uh, I want to open those doors of perception and I want to become enlightened. No, so we would, we would do these, we would take these, uh, drugs and then we would record, you know, we would do audio recordings. We would interview each other and try to sort of understand what was happening in the moment. See, I love hearing this because, uh, I had a similar feeling, though maybe it wasn't as explicit. Like, I, I was in college, and I, I don't mean, I, and I can't speak for all of my friends, but I feel like the crowd that I was with, um, a lot of the times it was like, oh, we're at a concert, let's get fucked up. <laughs> right. I, for me, I, whenever I was doing that stuff, I was always like looking for like some sort of enlightenment or answers or like uh, wisdom, you know, like something. Yeah. And yeah. it can be, uh, you know, you can wind up being sort of the bummer at the party when you're the guy who wants that and everyone else just wants trails. <laughs> right, right. You know? But I was always in it for that. Like, that was always what it was about for me at its core. Though, like, you know, sometimes, some nights, like, it just was, it just came down to fun. You know, eventually it can be silly, but um, I was always in it for that reason. So did you, like, when you and your, your teenage buddies were doing this stuff, I mean, you know, your your little brains are still forming at that age, like, you know, did you have any breakthroughs? Did it change you in a substantive way? Uh, you know, I'm sure that it did. Um, and I'd be hard pressed to really define the scope of how it changed me. Um, other than to just say that it did, <laughs> you know, like yeah. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be the person I am today without those experiences, but I can't, I can't point to a time back then that was like a specific Satori or, you know, this like monumental breakthrough where all of a sudden I was, you know, totally aware of the true nature of reality, you know, right. but, but, but what it does, what it did do is that it, it grants you a glimpse of that. It, it, you know, you peek beyond the veil or through the veil, or, you know, whatever it is. And you realize that there's this more, um, intense mode of existence beyond the day-to-day humdrum right um and and to me that's also what i seek from art both both as a creator and a consumer of it is that if you even for just that moment have that fissure in your consciousness where you have that uh experience it's gonna even once that moment is over whether it's a trip or whether it's a piece of music or a poem or whatever once that moment is over you have had that experience and it it hopefully motivates you to seek out a more intense mode of existence throughout the rest of your life well that's the thing you know like i think people sometimes want to go in and do ayahuasca or do some sort of hallucinogen and and uh have it be like a, get, get on like a fast track to enlightenment you know where you sort of skip levels or whatever and i, I guess there's some uh, anecdotes, anecdotal evidence for that, you know, whether yeah. it's in the context of hallucinogenic drugs or it's just like, you know, some guru in a cave who like, you know, just powerfully masters his mind, and <laughs> the blink right. of an eye or whatever. But, right. um, my, my instinct is that, um, for the overwhelming majority of us, if not all of us, there's no shortcuts, but what, what happened for me anyway, it's very simple. And I think this is sort of what you're speaking to is that if you do uh, hallucinogens, like at the very least, they just teach you very powerfully that there's a lot more than meets the eye mm -hmm. and that everything you thought you might have known could be wrong. It like it makes you a healthy skeptic, I think. And it also like introduces you to some of the mystery of uh, existence in a way that's really positive. 
Uh, and, also, and, and also maybe terrifying, but <clears throat> sometimes yeah. you, sometimes you got to toughen up a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's a scary universe sometimes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that experience maybe isn't right for everybody and definitely not right for everybody at any time. Right. You know, we, we all come to it when we're ready for it, hopefully. And if you don't, you probably have a really terrible time. Yeah. Um, and some people are ready for that. I was ready for that at age 14 or 15, probably by virtue of the fact that I had grown up with equally intense and strange experiences living in an ashram. So yeah, well, um, let's get to that. Did you live yeah. in an ashram in India? Like, do you have memories <clears throat> of that? Uh, I didn't live in an ashram in India. I did live in a few different ashrams, uh, on both the East coast and the West coast. All right. Um, and, the, and we moved out at a pretty early age. I think I was about four but then we would go back and spend school vacations. So, you know, spend a good chunk of my summer there and go back on long weekends and winter break and stuff like that. So what happens What happens on the ashram? Um, it's a pretty austere and rigorous schedule. So um, you get up very early, sometimes like 4 o'clock in the morning. You're doing – you're starting your day with chanting and meditation then you're eating a kind of communal meal in a big mess hall with a lot of other people. Um, then you do what's called SEVA, S-E-V-A, which is selfless service. It's basically community work. The ashram is all run on a volunteer basis. So, you know, these are huge compounds. They're basically the ones that I lived in were uh, converted hotels, um, and the one in upstate New York was actually a network of three different hotels in the Catskills, and there would be shuttle buses between them. So you can imagine, like, at, at minimum hundreds and often thousands, and in rare cases, tens of thousands of people. And what it takes to run all of that. So, you know, you have, like, reception and check-in. You have all the cooks, all the people who clean things, security, administration, all that stuff is volunteer, daycare, everything. Um, so... When you're not chanting, meditating, or eating these communal meals, you're doing your job, your seva. And it could be any of those things. And the idea is that that selfless service in and of itself is a spiritual discipline. And anything, anything creepy at the ashram? Uh, I didn't experience anything creepy. I mean, there were – we when in this particular tradition, there's this idea of Shaktipat or the awakening of – kundalini or these chakras right and everyone most people are aware of chakras what's the tradition what's the name of the tradition uh siddha yoga which is a which is pretty similar to if anyone out there is familiar with vipassana, vipassana meditation or it's sort of a form of cashmere shaivism shaivite shiva worship that type of stuff um but this idea that uh spiritual awakening uh is a is a physically visceral experience, not just a mental one. So uh, people have these things that they call them kriyas, which are like it's this energy manifesting in the body as you're becoming enlightened, and it can be anything as mild as a shiver to uh, sobbing to shouting to making animal noises and and. Keep in mind, I'd be like four years old and in this dark meditation hall with a couple hundred people uh, sitting quietly when I was really little, sitting in my dad's lap while he was meditating. And then all of a sudden, somewhere out in the darkness, someone starts like sobbing. 
<laughs> or someone starts like roaring like a lion or something like that. Okay, so I'm down with sobbing because I <laughs> I actually meditate regularly. Yeah. Okay. So and you know, I, I don't sob, but like I've had mm-hmm. experience. I was just telling my wife this the other day. Like sometimes I'll be doing it, and like all of a sudden, like tears will start to fall out of my eyes, and like I'm yeah. not I'm not even thinking about anything sad. It's like this. Yeah, it's yeah. like this weird like thing. But yeah. uh, roaring like a lion. That's like. <laughs> That's I'm I'm incredulous, or at least that, yeah. that's like next level stuff that I'm not aware of yet. You know, there's there's this great book that I just acquired. It's an old book. I haven't read it yet, so I can't really speak to it. But it's written by um, a clinician, MD, that um, that compares the idea, the process of the Kundalini awakening with a psychotic episode, a psycho- psychotic breakdown. Um, what what is and- Kundalini? What is that? Um, so it's part of this idea. It, the Kundalini awakening is like that, that, uh, chain of chakras that go up and down, you know, that start in your pelvis and go up through the top of your head. Right. And so it's like an energy, like, it's like opening up that like energy flow or something. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you open up your Kundalini and, and good things happen. <laughs> right. Is that right? And, and, and you, and you become liberated from the cycle of reincarnation. I mean, in, in a real, in if we're talking like strict, you know, Hindu orthodoxy. Is this what you think? No. no. I don't believe in reincarnation. I don't believe in the autonomous individual soul. So, Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty, and Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Okay, so let's get into this because I'm I'm trying to work through this myself. Like I don't think that there's an I, I'm fairly convinced there's no such thing as the self. Like that seems like mm-hmm. evident. Like there there seems to be like an evidence procedure that makes that make sense for me. Yeah, uh, everything's an amalgam. Everything, yeah. everything's a composite. Uh, and so what you're saying is that you know upon death, you don't think that like that composite like you know there's no there's nothing like whole coming out of that composite like a soul that's going to like then uh, re, re, you know, become reborn somewhere. Right. It just, yeah. it, it disperses somehow. Yeah, it disperses. And, and I, and in some ways I don't think it's ever, um, really separate. I mean, I, I, if I were to use a physical analogy, I would sort of liken it to, uh, when our consciousness manifests in a physical form, it would be like submerging a glass of water in the ocean. Right. And there's water, that's contained within that glass, but it's still connected to all the water that's outside the glass. Right. And then just withdraw 
that glass of water from the ocean, I guess, upside down so that it doesn't take any water with it. Right. And, there, and, there, and there you are and you're dead, you know? <laughs> so, but you're still in the ocean. But you're still, yeah, you're still a part of it. And you always were. Yeah, that's kind of what I think. I mean, I, like, right? Uh, that's the, I, I think I'm like, I think we're of a similar mind in that, like, okay, I can see this. Uh, yeah. It, I can see kind of proof of this in, in the natural world. And that's as far as I can go. But like reincarnation and, um, you know, people who think they can <clears throat> see their past lives, like any of that stuff uh, make any sense yeah. to you? It does, but more from a, like a, quantum theory perspective than a spiritual perspective but i mean you could argue that there's a lot of overlap there i mean if you subscribe to this idea that there's a that time is non-linear and that there's a collective consciousness you know we're all part of the ocean then if everything happened is still happening and everything that's going to happen has already happened on some dimension and in some plane all it takes is to look across at that event right so I don't think, for instance, that at some point, you know, thousands of years ago, I was Cleopatra and you were not. <laughs> it's, al- it's always like it's always royalty, isn't it? It's like so, right, right. No, one, no one's ever like I was a I was a, uh, you know, a pauper and like a petty yeah. criminal. And, you yeah. know, uh, it was it's always like, oh, I was Cleopatra. Or I was like King Tut or whatever. You know? Yeah. So I, I don't think that at any point that, you know, my soul that inhabits my body at one point was Cleopatra's soul. But if you subscribe to this idea that we're all part of this collective energy and that time is nonlinear, then couldn't I essentially time travel with my mind like through the collective consciousness and experience what Cleopatra experienced? Or experience what that pauper experience or experience what a dog is experiencing right now in another city. You know, I maybe the allure aside from the psychological romanticism of being Cleopatra, <laughs> there, there could be, I, you know, you could argue that, well, someone who is that was that much of a, a magnet for consciousness you know someone who is a queen and who has continued to be celebrated throughout history if you're going to sort of have an out-of-body experience and kind of travel through the ether and time and space maybe maybe those experiences those moments have a concentrated energy that has some sort of gravitational pull just like a massive body out in space would you know yeah yeah, i get that I, i mean have you ever had this happen for you have you ever had an experience like this um I've had out of body experiences, but, and I, I've had what I would call prescient visions or experiences. It's spookily enough that have manifested in my poems. Um, and I think that's because I write from a trance state. And so sometimes I write things in poems and then they kind of manifest. But I don't think of that as seeing in the future. I think of that as just kind of like seeing into the always already present. But, you know? you, but you've never like you never been like oh I am a dog in. <laughs> the only time I actually thought I was a dog was when I was on masculine when I was. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I, and my friend and I were walking around in the woods, and I my I realized that my conscious mind had no idea where I was or how I was going to get home, but that if I surrendered that and just surrendered to my subconscious, that I knew how to walk home. Hmm. And it was like, this is, this is what a dog feels like. This is, I have this instinctual experience that I know how to find my way back, even though I don't actually know 
the way on a conscious level. Were you peeing on trees and stuff like a dog would or no? Probably, yeah. <laughs> uh, what about, uh, like, what about um, these out-of-body experiences? Like, did you ever, like, you actually, uh, like, have floated out of your body and, like, looked down and seen your body and that kind of thing? Yeah, a couple times. Um, was, but this, was this also on mescaline? <laughs> no, this was just. But again, it's not a. Um, it's hard. I feel like it's more of like an expanding a field of vision. I don't. I think it's important to reiterate that I don't believe in this idea of like the soul leaving the body, you know, because I don't believe in the soul. So I just think of it as like broadening your peripheral vision. Right. Um, so. Yeah, I've had a few of those. Okay, and then what about gurus? Like, you were, like your parents followed this guy. I forget his name uh, already, but Baba... Muktananda. Baba Muktananda. Like, have you ever been in the presence of somebody that you felt was truly, like, special in that way? Um, in the physical presence of, I'm not sure. You, my, aside from Muktananda, my parents actually went out of their way to expose me to a lot of traditions. So we didn't just go to the ashram. We went to Episcopal Church, we went to synagogue, we went to Unitarian Universalist Church, we went to mosques, exposed me to Buddhism and Sufism and all this different stuff. And I met a lot of holy individuals through all of those traditions. But I was never, to me, I never found anyone who I sort of latched onto and thought, this is my teacher, you know. Right. I kind of was, I guess, a spiritual tourist, but... I think more than that, really a spiritual anarchist, uh, which, I, I mean, I was a political anarchist, am to a certain degree one, but became one as a teenager. And so I took whatever I felt was useful to me uh, and continue to incorporate that into my own form of spirituality. It seems healthy to me. Yeah, I think so. And like, uh, I, I, I probably could have grown up to be a really fucked up person, but <laughs> I think I managed to uh, also, you know, my parents instilled in me the idea that I get to choose my own path, that I didn't have to subscribe to any of these. So your parents sound cool. They are cool. Yeah. Yeah. What do they do? Like, I mean, you know, you're going to like your dad was in the seminary or whatever at Yale. Yeah. The and his brother, his brother ended up going all the way through seminary and did become a an Episcopal priest, but okay. So I mean, like, what what did your folks do? Like, I mean, it seems like they were kind of uh, what unorthodox, like not yeah. not necessarily like corporate types, say. Yeah, no, definitely not. Um, my mom was when she was younger, she was a photographer and a and a painter, and then after I was born, both basically basically both my parents realized they need to get jobs because they had a family now. Um, <laughs> so first, my mom became a car saleswoman and she became the first Cadillac saleswoman uh, in Massachusetts and maybe even in the country. I'm not really sure. Um, and she became the top car salesperson at her dealership. Wow. And, and then she sort of jumped streams from that to selling high-end European furniture. Um, and then from there, she sort of looped back to her artistic roots and opened her own interior design business, which she still has and has done for like 30 years now. That's cool. Yeah. And my dad had, my dad had sort of a more, uh, circuitous route. He also was a car salesman at one point, I think was a dictionary and encyclopedia sales guy. Um, he was a waiter for a while when I was really young. 
um, and at like a very high end restaurant. And um, then he went back to school and got his master's in education and became a stress management counselor and pioneered a lot of that stress management work in the 80s where people started recognizing that stress has real physical implications. Um, so and is, is this like uh, the kind of the similar of a similar ilk to like John Cabot Zinn and like that yes, whole? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So because like, yeah. he's in Massachusetts too, like do they work together yeah. or in the same? Uh, they don't anymore, but yeah, they were colleagues. Um, okay. Yeah, and my dad helped set up some like stress management clinics and hospitals and worked with health workers. And then from there, he moved on to doing Reiki. If you, if you know anything about Reiki, um, what is it? A massage? He is. No, it's not massage. It's it's a Japanese form of Japanese energy healing. Oh right. Um, and uh, he, through his stress management work, he had been working with. He sort of. My dad also had a near death experience or a real death experience, whatever you want to call it. He was declared dead and then came back without being revived. Um, and that was when he was younger. So Wait, what, ha- stress, what happened? He was in a bus accident in India. Oh Jesus. And okay. he, he got thrown through the windshield and then rushed to the hospital and they declared him dead at the hospital and pulled the sheet over him and he had the whole tunnel of light thing and came back to life. Okay, wait, let's okay. So he had the <laughs> he had the tunnel of light thing. Yeah. What yeah. does that mean? Like he saw the tunnel, he was walking through the tunnel. Yeah, he you know, he had this what pretty classic thing, uh experienced a lot of tranquility, a lot of peace actually felt like he wanted to just go to the other side. And his, in his experience, his guru appeared to him and told him to go back and that he still had work to do. So wait, Baba, just, Baba Muktananda showed up in the tunnel? Yeah, yeah. No shit. Yeah. See, there's something going on, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, so, intent. That's intense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and so, you know, uh, it's once you have an experience like that, and I – I think you can explain it in a lot of different scientific ways, skeptical ways, psychological ways. But regardless, that's a powerful experience, and it's no wonder that that shapes someone's life. I wonder who would show up in the tunnel for me. <laughs> <laughs> who do you think would show up? In the tunnel? I have no idea. I shudder to think. I mean, who who would be like your worst nightmare to show up in that tunnel? <laughs> oh God. I'd have, to, I'd have to put some thought into it. Yeah. It's just like somebody from pop culture. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Just, like it would have to be somebody like really trivial and just like right. like, in, like very grating, you know, like um, Justin Bieber's like, yo, it's not your time. I <laughs> <laughs> right. work to do, dog. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I could not have, uh, I could not have put it better myself. Yeah. Um, and that now, now I think like you've kind of like, uh, that's going to manifest, I fear. You, <laughs> yeah. you put it I've out there. That seed and... I'm going to have the Bieber tunnel experience. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's, that's actually, yeah, that's the, that's the name of Justin Bieber's Jimi Hendrix cover band, actually. <laughs> meet, you, meet, meet you in the tunnel. Um, yeah. <laughs> wow, that's okay. So your dad, like, that's a, that's a, that's a life changer. Like, taking masculine yeah. at 15 and reading yeah. Aldous Huxley, like, that's kind of a life changer. But when, like, you die and there's a sheet put over you, and yeah. you're and you're in the tunnel, and then you see your guru. I mean, that's like uh, that's of a uh, different order of magnitude. Yeah, yeah, so, for sure. But that's cool, because like, I you know I find like uh, you know professionally, I think this is a struggle for a lot of people who uh, write because you know people who write and and want to somehow make a life in the arts, uh, whether it's you know 
you know, something that makes them money or not. Like they want their lives to have meaning and they want to do meaningful work. And, you know, trying to find uh, the balance between breadwinning and pursuing one's passions and doing meaningful work is a tough trick to pull. Yeah. And it sounds like your dad uh, and your mom, uh, but, you know, particularly when it comes to like stress management work, you know, helping people, taking kind of like the, the Yale Divinity uh, School or whatever it was, the seminary. Yeah. And uh, all the all of that, like, uh, you know, area of study and that kind of interest and then folding it into, I guess, something that's like related, um, but maybe more uh, contemporary and less. Uh, I guess you're not bound by the, the church or whatever. I don't know how to put right. it, but you know what I'm yeah. saying? Like yeah, he, yeah. He, fa- he found a way to mold uh, a life and a profession that, that fit his values. And that's hard to do. Yeah. Well, and that, and that that was the the end of that sort of path for him. What I was going to say is it actually brought him to working with terminally ill people. Um, and he did a lot of that. That was became the focus of his stress management work and became very much the focus of his Reiki work, working with people who had been in comas or came out of comas or were diagnosed with cancer, you know, and only had months to live or different things like that. That ended up being a lot of what he, he did as a, as, a, as a stress management counselor and as a healer. So if he does, if he's doing Reiki on me, what does he do? So Reiki has a prescribed set of uh, hand positions that, you know, much like the chakras, are the the idea that this um, moving the hands throughout this set of positions channels the energy in the body and facilitates the body healing itself, really. Um, and but it's a very light laying on of hands. It's not pressure or manipulation or anything like that. Um, and the typical Reiki session, I think, lasts about an hour. And you know, again, I'm skeptical. I feel like you can explain the science in a lot of ways. I think, uh, but at the very least, just the power of touch and the power to center you and to relax you and. And it's scientifically proven that a relaxed body is a body that does heal itself better. Um, So even if that's all it does, I I will say, having had a number of Reiki sessions myself, that it, like, conks me the fuck out. And, like, I go go deeper uh, in that in a very effortless way than I do often in meditation as a recipient of Reiki. Um, And I I wake – I come out of it, like, just totally – spaced out you know if you've ever actually managed to get pretty deep in meditation and when you come out you kind of feel a little stoned or whatever sure um that that's how i feel after getting a good reiki session well, and it's also just like you're just lying that you're lying down i'm imagining right <clears throat> yeah someone's yeah. putting like someone's putting their hands on you like a couple things like the, the couple things that you said resonate with me like first of all like a relaxed body heals itself better yeah like if, if when a wild animal gets sick or injured in the wild it doesn't like get neurotic about it and freak out. It just lies down and goes to sleep. <laughs> right. It's right. not like, oh God, I have cancer. Oh, I got cancer. What is it? Yeah. Uh, does, yeah. This, does this bump match this bump? Like, what's happening? Yeah, I, I got to Google my symptoms. Yeah, I got to. Yeah, <laughs> there's none of that. They, the, the fucking animal just lies down and it's fine. Yeah. yeah. Um, so there's that. And then the other thing, too, is the power of touch. Like, Bob Hope, I mean, you know, this is a ran- this yeah. is one of these random pop cultural, you know, uh, factoids that, like, I always recall, but he lived to be 100. Dude got a massage every single day. Oh, really? I didn't and know that. I, I remember reading that. Maybe, I mean, I think that's true, especially like in his older, you know, when he was like in his 90s, some like masseuse yeah. would just come in every day. He got a massage. And I was, I always thought to myself, like, if I ever have the money and, yeah. I'm, and I'm 90, 
if you can just blow a hundred dollars a day on massages, yes, just bring them a suit. <laughs> you'll yeah. live, live to be 120. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, well, that's, that's cool. There's something about, but there's something to that. And I just think too, like, you know, nowadays, um, because I have young children and just am harried and don't sleep enough. Like, uh, I literally can fall asleep in a dentist chair while the dentist is cleaning <laughs> my teeth. Like that's like yeah. my that's my reiki. Yeah, yeah. I'm not, I'm not even kidding. Like I, it's relaxing to me to get my teeth cleaned just because I'm like inert and I can't be on my cell phone. You know. Yeah. Right. Um, so it's like you know wherever you can get it, but uh, yeah. I think that's cool. And so uh, anarchy. Yeah. Like you mentioned earlier, you're like a spiritual anarchist, and then you also talked like politically and like how as a teenager you kind of became an anarchist and. Uh, it makes me think back to when I talked to Dennis Cooper and he was one of like the earliest guests on this program. Oh, cool. He is a, he's an uh, anarchist yeah. and you know, we talked about it and it's not necessarily what people think. I think people think of anarchy <laughs> and I'm imagining this is the advantage uh, that you're taking with it, you know, but I think people hear the word anarchy and they imagine like people like flipping over cop cars and like lighting things on fire. <laughs> Right, but like, talk- I mean, that's fun too. But, yeah. You know. <laughs> <laughs> right. anyway, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to naysay your your own, you know, uh, <laughs> an alien celebrity, but you know. So, what about you? But what is like, what is anarchy? You know, spiritual anarchy, or just like your your interest in anarchy? Like, what does that mean to you? How do you define that for yourself? Um, I guess for me, um, it's it's a, it's a kind of ontological anarchy it's not which can manifest politically and socially but it is very much the cult of the individual um and so you know i i I believe uh in every person's right to sort of be sovereign over themselves um this is probably like putting me on some you know watch list right now as I talk about it, <laughs> as I talk about being a sovereign citizen and I realize I'm like, <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's our right to choose our own paths and, um, and, and that there's a social contract there that, that runs deeply, a social contract that runs deeply, more deeply than a political contract or a legal contract, you know, that, uh, I mean, how many of us really do anything because of legal obligations rather than the social implications of breaking that agreement. You know, like, uh, I don't, I don't think that because, uh, certain crimes are outlawed, that's what prevents us from doing them. Clearly it doesn't because people still break those laws. It's this idea of being ostracized by our peers in our community and, and the empathy we feel for those people um, that prevents us from doing those. Okay, things. so because this is an this is an interesting like uh, question for me. I've wrestled with this like in my life over and over again, and on this show from time to time. But like, you know, if we start back when uh, we were talking earlier about you know all of us being essentially drops in the ocean, you know, all beings being drops in the ocean, which implies yep. that we're all connected. You know, everything is connected. Uh, everything inter is or is interrelated. Mm-hmm. That's a deep truth that I think yeah. you can actually see. Um, and you know, that, that you can, uh, what is it? You can logically work that out. There's evidence for it. Sure. Um, so when it comes to how a uh, society organizes itself, you know, cause I also think, I also hear what you're saying about individual liberty and individual sovereignty and people having the right to choose their own path. 
Yeah. Um, and that's that. I think there's like a, that's the central tension of life. Like in in it's a central tension of like at least uh, American political life is this tension between um, collective responsibility and individual liberty. Yeah. And I feel like collective, like the collectivity, the all is one. We are all related. Is a deeper truth than we are all individual selves. Yeah. Am I steering off course? Like, because I feel like then the, the, the way that we organize ourselves should tilt more towards the collective rather than the individual. But yet I don't want to live in a society where like people's individual expression is like subjugated or, you know what I'm saying? Like it's, it's right. well, how do you, how do well, you negotiate that terrain? Yeah. So I think it's a good, I think it's a, it's a good paradox to point out, but so let's bring it to the micro level. Rather than talking about my relationship to society, let's talk about my relationship to my fiance. Um, Congratulations. So, <laughs> thank you. So uh, in that relationship, I can do whatever I want, right? <laughs> you know, like I can we, – uh, we agree on certain rules in the relationship. Like I'm not going to be an asshole. Uh, you know, I'm not going to betray her trust or, you know, whatever those rules are. Um, that, th- that we agree upon those rules and I can conduct myself however I want, but if I want to have that relationship be successful and it's important to me to have her in my life, then I need to have empathy for her needs. I need to be responsive to them. I need to listen to her and then I need to conduct myself accordingly. Okay. I get that. And so, and so if you, I think if you expand that to a macro level, like being a good citizen is is not that different from just being a good person and a good partner. You know, we need to cultivate our relationships to anyone um, with that kind of care and attention. And obviously, you're not going to have that deep of a relationship with everyone around you, with everyone you work with, with strangers on the street. But this idea to be mindful, aware, considerate of how you conduct yourself in the world. And, and in that sense, that's where my spirituality intersects with my politics, is that I, I believe that uh, greater society begins with the individual. And if you, if you, be, you know, it's that old adage, be the change you want to see in the world. Right. You know? So if you, can, if you can be a more aware, enlightened individual, it'll resonate, it'll, it'll create that that change in a, in a sphere around you. Well, and I don't want to, I mean, I don't want to sound too precious or um, like righteous or whatever, but like when it, you know, I think what you're talking about, you know, when you talk about things at the micro level uh, is love, you yeah. know, and like how to, how do you conduct yourself in a love relationship? How do you be in love? What does that even mean? And right. it would seem to me that like, you know, you look around at the world, there's a lot of trouble, you know, human beings yeah. have a hard time getting along uh, to say yeah. the least. And, uh, and, and then and at the micro and the macro level, you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so it's like, I, I think it makes, it might serve people well, myself included to like, think about like, what, what does love mean? What does that mean? You know, like, yeah. uh, I think personally where I'm at with it is that like, it's a felt oneness, you mm-hmm. know? And so if you're in a relationship with your fiance or your wife or your significant other, like that person hopefully, uh, awakens that feeling in you and vice versa, yeah. you know? Yeah. Right. Yep. As opposed to like some romanticized version of it where it's like, oh, right. we just love each other. And, which, <laughs> yeah. and that version is the opposite of hate, you know. Right. Right. It, yeah. It's an obsession. And actually, I think that's a really good point is that is that romanticized version being the opposite of hate in that 
what I consider a very a, uh, essential part of a love relationship is non-attachment in that you conduct yourself through right action, being the best person you can be to this other person without attaching yourself to a desired outcome. That the goal is to just conduct yourself with right action and trust that if you both do that, you'll have a positive outcome and not be married to what the end goal is. You're a wise man, Jonica. <laughs> Things are going well, but I mean, I'm at, you know, that's, I mean, that makes sense yeah. to me. I feel like that's, yeah. uh, that's good. That's good. Uh, that's good knowledge. I'll bring that, you know, since it's a literary podcast, I, I, it, it's actually uh, directly, directly relates to the book that I just had published. Um, because I talk a lot about that in the book about this idea of non-attachment and it's, it's couched in say the title of the book. Let's plug it right in the middle of the show. (laughs) Sure. So the book is titled the truth is we are perfect and it's published by third man books, which is the new publishing wing of Jack White's third man records out of Nashville. Right. Um, and that in, in the book is broken up into three sections. And the first section is about losing oneself in another. And then the second section is about losing the other. And then the third section is about recreating oneself in the absence of the other. Um, and, and that other can be a romantic other. It could be the sort of Sufi beloved other. Um, uh, or it could be a platonic other. But uh, this idea that the real suffering of that loss comes from being attached. Have you ever, and, ha- have you ever suffered like a major loss? Uh, yeah. I mean, in a romantic sense, I've been through a divorce. Okay. So that was, that was pretty – That's that middle section of the book actually is written from that time in my life. Um, but I pull in all sorts of stuff in the, in the book. Uh, there's a lot of stuff pulled in from – Gnostic texts like Nag Hammadi, Dead Sea Scrolls. There's stuff pulled in from the Ashtavakra Gita, which is the Hindu scripture dialogue with King Janaka, my, you know, who I get my name from. Right. Um, and there's, a, you know, there's other weird stuff that, that gets pulled in there too. Um, and I, I also probably worth mentioning that I was uh, an undertaker for seven years. Oh my so God. Right. I, was a, I was a witness to other people's loss for a, a long time. Okay, so that's an interesting job. Yeah, yeah, it is. So, like you're embalming people? You're embalming dead bodies? Yeah, I was doing that, working funerals themselves, often the first point of contact, so taking the calls from the family or the police and going and picking up the bodies and doing all of that. Damn. So you must have seen some stuff. See, Yeah, saw a lot of stuff. I, I worked for probably the biggest funeral home in Boston, the second oldest funeral home in the country. And in seven years, you know, I I don't know what the actual count was, but I would say I probably handled 2,000 bodies, maybe. You just show up and you're like, don't worry, he's in the tunnel with Baba Mukananda. (laughs) Yeah, he's in the tunnel with Justin Bieber. (laughs) Bieber's going to send him back, just wait a few minutes. (laughs) Damn. Okay. So, I mean, uh, what is like, I mean, did you, what did you learn from that? You know, seeing how people, uh, are responding to death, being confronted with that, like not only confronted with the dead body, which so so few of us are on a regular basis, you know, like we, we just don't witness death, uh, hardly at all. 
And then you also are seeing people, you know, responding to its reality immediately. Like, what did yeah. you, what did you learn from that? What did you see? Uh, I guess one of the things I learned was that we don't actually respond to the reality immediately. <laughs> um, that our response is usually kind of a non-response or uh, being at a loss of how to respond. Um, and it was interesting to see how that varies from individual to individual and culture to culture. We, I did a lot of different services. So I worked in a Jewish funeral home for a while. I did a lot of traditional Western, you know, Judeo-Christian services. I did a lot of Chinese and Buddhist services, even a couple of little more fringe things. I did a aroma or gypsy service and, you know, uh, and it was interesting to see how the cultural scripts for grief and mourning affect the individual response to it. And who, how, who handles it best? Who, who are you like, man, these people have it down. They have it down. Um, I would say I was really, uh, I was really taken by, um, some of the Buddhist traditions that I saw, especially one in particular, and I don't know how to identify it, unfortunately, but they were really intimately involved with the care of the body, and the immediate family came in and washed and clothed the body, along with a Buddhist priest and myself. So it was, it was a, first of all, an incredibly intimate experience. It was just me, the two immediate family members, and the priest, and the dead body, and they sort of did kind of this ritual washing of the body and then dressed it in white linens. Um, and that was, that was so profoundly moving. And to see them with that physical reality um, and, and, you know, having that intimacy um, and that option to kind of say goodbye is something you just don't see and, and is really actually discouraged in the Western mortuary tradition. Well, but it's also like a thing where people are confronting. I mean, you know, yeah. that's, that's part of the beauty of it is that they're looking at it in, in the eye for lack of a better way of putting it. Yeah. You know, like yeah. I think a lot of us want to turn away or you just sort of stare at the corpse during the wake and then you're done. Or like right. I've been to all sorts of different funerals and like sometimes there isn't even a, a wake, you know, it's just immediate cremation and you just sort of, Look, right. at, look at a picture surrounded by flowers yeah. or whatever. You yeah. Know? And yeah. so I, I think that I admire, I, I admire that kind of approach where you're dealing with it and you're confronting it and you're actually having a tactile experience with it. Um, because it's, it's going to happen to us all. It seems foolish yeah. to, to turn one's back on it though. You know, I, I'm not here to judge anybody's pain. If it's just like so excruciating to, to confront that you can't do it. I understand that, but right. Um, I, I, well, that, yeah, so go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I, I would hope that I would have that, you know, the kind of approach you described. Like, I don't know if I'm washing the body, but like, I might, yeah. I might pick out an outfit and like hang, you know? And like, yeah, yeah. So we'll see, you know. But well, I, what's it with the, you know, I, I do think probably a lot of people aren't prepared to wash the body themselves. But I, I will say a, a second close for me is the Jewish tradition of sitting Shiva. Um, because I think that it does exactly that is that it, it uh, allows for that space to slowly process your grief over time. Um, 
And it's increment. It's not only it does two things. One is it gives you space to grieve, and it also mandates a timeline to move on from your grief. Yeah, which what, I think like is what, how does shiva work? How does sitting shiva work? Mm-hmm. So the the I'm, you know I'm not going to get all the details right, um, even though I come from a Jewish family that does it, but. Um, so it's sort of incremental in that the initial very short period is a period of intense mourning where uh, the immediate family basically closes themselves off from all worldly duties, you know, sits in the house. They're not allowed to go out. They're not allowed to do any work or even prepare food. That's why other people come and bring food. They tear uh, part of their clothing and wear that to remind them of the tear in the social fabric. Um and they just sit there like intensely, I'm not going to do anything else but be mindful of my loss. And that that is a very short period of time. You know, it's like a few days or a week or whatever. And then they're allowed to do a little more. They're allowed to socialize a little more. Eventually, they're allowed to go back to work weeks and months. But, I mean, real traditional Shiva is you don't um, – I think like listen to music or go to a movie or read for pleasure or anything for like a whole year. Um, but, but it's this idea is that it, it forces you to confront that grief. So what, you can't tweet during Shiva? <laughs> you can't tweet during Shiva. That's definitely, um, <laughs> yeah, but, uh, but, but, and this is what I didn't actually really understand the value of until I went through my own grieving process in a romantic way uh, and saw it in others too, is that not only does it allow you time to grieve, but it says, okay, you know what? It's been three months, time to move on. Right. You know, time to go back to work, time to start uh, having fun again. Like you, you denied yourself that for three months so that you could really be in touch with your grief. And now that time is over and it's time to like participate in the world again and become a person. Were you able to do that? Uh, I was, yeah. And, and actually, it was on the advice of my mother who um, suggested something in a similar fashion. She didn't equate it to sitting Shiva, but she said, every day, set aside some time. doesn't matter how long. It could be 10 minutes. It could be an hour. But give yourself some time to be as sad as you want to be. Don't tell yourself, like, oh, I shouldn't cry or, oh, I should be better or, oh, I should think about something else. Just like Give yourself whatever that time is to just fully feel your sadness. And then get on Tinder. And then get on Tinder, right. <laughs> and then just swipe left, swipe yeah. left. <laughs> right. Um, so uh, I did that. And it was, I mean, it was amazing how therapeutic it was. There would be times where I was like just wailing, you know, in a way that you would never normally permit yourself to be. Um, and, and I remember one time specifically, I was like, I mean, it sounds insane. I I felt insane. I was like writhing on the floor, wailing. And then I just started laughing. Damn. And it was, that was, and you were at work, which was double. And I was at work on LSD and it was like the most (laughs) fucked up thing I've ever done. Um, (laughs) Well, but you know, like, that's the thing. I think people, um, you know, they don't necessarily want to confront death a lot of the time. They also don't want to necessarily confront their suffering. And so they'll try to uh, um, anesthetize themselves against it with whatever drugs or distractions or whatever it is that they have on hand. 
Um, but the way through it, you know, the way out of it is through it. You know, it seems like you're saying, and you got to let yourself feel that stuff in order to, uh, process it and get and get on with your life. Yeah. But there's also like a fine line between processing it and allowing yourself to feel it and wallowing, you know, you got to also have a good, have a good bullshit detector. Otherwise you can be like, man, I'm really feeling this. It's been like six years. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. Well, I think that's the great thing about Shiva is that it, it has this timeline. It says, Feel it, feel it, feel it. Okay, now it's time to move on. Stop wallowing in it. Yeah. You know, stop wearing torn clothes. Like get a new right. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Get a haircut. So, uh, but but like writing, you know, you're working as an undertaker. Yeah. Um, you've got this kind of like deep. Uh, I think you've got a really deep spiritual education. You know, much deeper spiritual education than most people, especially since it's so varied. Um, yeah. Like, all, all of these things, like this, is like the perfect education for a poet. So, like, what what. Yeah. Did, when did you start writing and how did you get into the literary world? And then how did you wind up with Jack White's imprint? <laughs> um, so I started writing probably at a pretty, I mean, it was a very young age. I don't, I couldn't even really tell you. I know probably the earliest poem I remember writing was a really trite poem about a butterfly. And I was like 10 or something like that. Um, but my, my dad writes, his dad was a award-winning journalist and a, and a playwright. So, you know, not only spirituality, but my family valued literature also. Um, so I was exposed to that at an early age. I, I wrote through high school. I went to, I, I got into actually publishing cause you know, I, I run a, an indie press black ocean. Um, I got into that through making my own chapbooks and zines as a teenager. Um, and uh, I, I had my first sort of writing mentorship when I was, I think, 13, maybe, 13 or 14. My dad hooked me up with one of his friends who was a published poet. And we would do this really kind of, you know, Robert Bly kind of walk through the New England woods reciting poetry out loud type of things on the weekends. <laughs> Um, but it was so cool to be, you know, like 12 or 13 years old and being able to do this. And he gave me a real poetic education. He gave, I had, I was reading, he had me reading some really great modern and contemporary poets that I never would have read in high school. You sure, know? sure. Um, Plus it's just, so, it's just powerful to meet people who actually do it. Who actually do it. And, and it was powerful to be reading it out loud. That was the biggest thing to, to not just be like, you know, sitting in my room reading but to be going on walks and then just like sitting by a pond and then reading these poems out loud um, gave me an appreciation for a lot of stuff that I might normally not have been turned on to. Um, so I ended up going to Emerson, uh, did my BFA in writing literature and publishing, uh, went from there to do an MFA in poetry. Uh, and uh, Where did you do that at? The MFA was at uh, Vermont College in Montpelier. It's a low-res program. Yeah. My my mentor at, at Emerson was Bill Knott, um, who passed away recently. But he was the one who encouraged me to do an MFA. Um, and at the time, I, I wanted to teach. So he said, well, if you're going to teach, you got to go back and, you know, get a master's. Um, and, and he didn't really believe in it. He was just sort of like, this is how you game the system. <laughs> you got to get yeah. these degrees if you want to get a job. Right. So, um, so I did that and, and I said, well, I can't, you know, I'm, 
I'm supporting myself. I can't just like take two years and go do something. And I had never heard of low rest programs. And he's like, no, just go do this low rest program for two years and get your piece of paper and then teach. So that was, that was my, didn't realize was that spending two years of my life and in a low rest program, there's no breaks. It's just 24 seven, you know? Um, but spending that much time on actually writing and reading, I was reading, you know, a book of poetry a week. I was writing a poem a week. I was revising a poem a week. I was writing a paper every month and doing that solidly nonstop for two years definitely made me a better poet. <laughs> sure. Amazing. It um, works. Yeah, exactly. And what was cool about it was taught me how to be a poet while, while being in the world. You know, I was working as an undertaker while I was doing that. Um, so, uh, so I did that. And then what I realized after I finished my MFA was that trying to get a job in academia sucks. Um, and I was either going to have to go back and do a PhD or I was going to start this publishing company that I always dreamed of. And I decided to start Black Ocean, um, and keep working day jobs. Uh, fast forward a number of years and I am going through my divorce and I lost some records in the divorce. And one of the records was by this band, Immortal Lee County Killers. And Immortal Lee County Killers frontman was this guy, Chet Weisey, uh, who is now the editor for Third Man Books. Right. So back then, years ago, I'm looking for some Lee County Killers albums, and they've broken up, but they still have a website. And I had met Chet at a show in Boston, and so I email Chet, and I say, hey, man, trying to get a hold of some of your records. Do you still have any? Can I buy them from you? Um, Chet saw my Black Ocean email address. He was thinking of going back to school for a master's at the time. And uh, we just started talking rock and roll and poetry and forged a friendship that way. This was probably, I don't know, seven years ago now. And fast forward even more, uh, Chet gets tapped to be the editor for this new publishing endeavor, Third Man Books. Chet and I start talking about publishing. I'm sort of doing some you know, pro bono consulting, advising on how to get into book publishing. Um, they asked me to be part of their anthology that they published last year, Language Lessons, which is this beautiful big box set that's got a big book and two vinyl LPs and a bunch of broadsides. Sure. Um, and then last year, I, I'm finishing up this manuscript that just got published. Um, well, it hadn't been at the time. And I'm sending it out to some editors. And literally, as I'm sending out these query letters... Chet emails me with some questions about third man books and distribution and stuff. And this light bulb goes off and I go, Hey, uh, are you guys thinking of acquiring more titles? Cause I just finished writing this book <laughs> and, uh, it's just this great synergistic moment. And, you know, they had all read my work before cause I was in the anthology. They had seen me read cause I read for them at the Newport folk festival and they just got excited and they said, yeah, totally. We're meeting with Jack in a couple of weeks. Send over the manuscript and we'll figure it out. And incredibly fortunate, you know, six weeks after I finished writing this book, it's acquired by Third Man. Wow. It's pretty crazy. That's awesome. Yeah. So uh, congratulations to you. Thank you. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk. This has been a great hour and I really appreciate it. And uh, I wish you well, uh, you know, both with this book and then on subsequent efforts. 
Thanks so much for having me. It's not a lot of people I can talk, you know, psychedelic drugs, meditation, and poetry with, and I'm, Justin Bieber. I'm, I'm your man. I'm your man, <laughs> especially Bieber. In yeah. fact, after I, after I turn off the recorder, let's keep talking Justin Bieber, if you don't mind. Sounds great. All right. There's Jonica Stuckey. Great conversation. Uh, his poetry collection is called The Truth Is We Are Perfect. It's available now from Third Man Books. You can find Jonica online at jonicastuckey.com. And uh, he's also on Twitter. His handle over there is at Jonica underscore Stuckey. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget to go get the Other People app. This podcast has its own app. The app is free. It's available in the app store of your choice. It's available for your uh, iPhone, your iPad, your Android. You, uh, you get the app, you get the most recent 50 episodes of this program free of charge, and then if you want to sign up for premium, you can stream the archives, get access to everything, hear my conversations with uh, hundreds of writers, including George Saunders, Cheryl Strayed, Edwidge Dantica, Tom Parada, Jonathan Lethem. The list goes on. If you want to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. I am uh, I'm going to Chicago later this week. There's some news. I'm going to go see my nephew. I haven't met my nephew yet. My little sister had a baby boy. I'm going to go meet him. His name is Jake. Very pleased about that. It'll be a quick trip, but uh, I'm going to get to hang with a baby for the weekend. Please remember that I, uh, Heinrich, Ib- Heinrich? Henrik Ibsen was terrified of even the smallest dogs. How do you pronounce that? Heinrich? Henrik? Please remember that Henrik Ibsen was terrified of even the smallest dogs and that Mark Twain once referred to the Book of Mormon as, quote, chloroform in print. Thanks again for listening, everybody. I appreciate it. Thanks to Jonica Stuckey. Go get his poetry collection. Thanks to Third Man Books. I'll be back soon. I'm going to have more to say. I'll tell you about my trip when I get back. How does that sound? Just a slow news week. I'm entitled to one of those every once in a while. All right, that's it. I'm done. (laughs) 